Hebrews chapter 1, in a way, it tells a story. In the first four verses, it tells the story of Jesus Christ and his preeminence as the Son of God, as it says in verse 2, the appointed heir of all things, as it says in verse 2, and also the creator of worlds, plural, as it says in verse 2. We learn the story of of him in that way, and that he, as it says in verse 4, is so much better than the angels. And then, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Uh, There's a lot that's implied in that, and I'll come back to it. But that's kind of the story that's told in this chapter. The the verses that follow, verse 4, verses 5 through 14, one way of describing these is that they tell the story of a God who has condescended to earth and who through being shaped by the word and through the ministering of angels successfully overcame the world and indeed overcame all things and took his rightful place, as it says again in verse 4, by inheritance as an exalted being. Let's go to verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, Okay, so God spoke to the fathers, meaning people of long ago were spoken to by the prophets, and particularly by Moses. So we're talking about an old order, an old law that Jesus Christ built upon. And in verse 2, Paul says, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So it's a new day. It's a new order, and as the Savior has described in other scripture, he says that the law in him was fulfilled. And so Paul is um, introducing a more excellent way, or uh, as he says in verse 4, a more excellent name. Probably frequently refer to the author of Hebrews as Paul, even though there's uncertainty as to whether it was him, and I, I think personally I'm not sure where I come down on this. I, I think I, I, the style is too different from the other epistles to believe that it was Paul. Okay, what we have then is the Son of God, as we see in verse 2. And, and when we read in verse 3, we, we find a, a curious expression in verse 3, where it says that the Son of God is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So the word his appears twice there. And as near as we can tell, that's referring, that pronoun is referring to the Father. So Christ is is the brightness of the Father's glory and in the express image of the Father's person. Now, there is a Greek word that looks like the word character, but it has a K instead of a C-H. C-H-A-R-A-K. T-E-R, character. This is the word that gets translated into the phrase express image. 
It's quite interesting because character refers to a reproduction of something else or even a representation of something else. And, and a, an interesting example of that that comes from these Roman times would be when a signet ring is pressed into wax, like on a note or an envelope, and an impression is left in the wax. And so that's a representation or a character. And uh, so in, in, in this way, Jesus was in the express image or was a character, re referring to the, the Greek word, probably not pronouncing that correctly, but of his father. Now, here's something that Jeffrey R. Holland says that's well worth considering. Quote, of course, the centuries-long drift away from belief in such a perfect and caring father hasn't been helped by the man-made creeds of erring generations, which describe God variously as unknown and unknowable, formless, passionless, elusive, ethereal, simultaneously everywhere and nowhere at all. Certainly that does not describe the being we behold through the eyes of these prophets, nor does it match the living, breathing, embodied Jesus of Nazareth, who was and is in the brightness of his glory and in the express image of his Father. In that sense, Jesus did not come to improve God's view of man nearly so much as he came to improve man's view of God. So when we read in verse 2 that he is the Son of the Father, and then in verse 3 that he's in it, in his express image. That's how we interpret that. Now, we also read in verse 2 this phrase, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Again, the he in that phrase refers to God the Father, has appointed Jesus Christ as heir of all things. Now, what does that mean? Well, we get some insight into that in verse 3, that the very last phrase where it says, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. At other times, um, in other writings uh, by Paul, Jesus Christ is, is referred to as, as the heir. And sometimes we're referred to as joint heirs. It's alluded to actually in the story of the prodigal son that the Savior tells as well. The idea that a son could become an heir of all that the father hath. And that's what's implied in verse 4 when it says, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent way. That, that uh, the implication there is the same as that which is described in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the oath and covenant of the priesthood, when we're told that we may have all that the father hath. Okay, and then when we look at verse 2, we see this kind of incredible phrase, by whom also he hath made the worlds. So the author of Hebrew is telling us that Jesus Christ is not just another Moses. And, and he, he makes an oblique reference to Moses in verse 1. But he's far more. He's the Son of God in the character or likeness of God. He is the heir of all things with God, and he's the creator of worlds, and worlds is plural. Now, there are a couple restoration scriptures out of the Pearl of Great Price that use language, a kind of stunning language that um, 
is hard for us to wrap our heads around. One of them is in Moses 1.33, where it says that he, create, he created worlds without number. And the other is in Moses 7.30, which says millions of earths like this. So, uh, and, and the, uh, King Benjamin <clears throat> refers to Jesus as the creator of all things from the beginning. So, so there's the uh, implication there is that his creations are limitless. So he is the creator of this world and of many others. Here's a, a very uh, enlightening quote by James E. Talmadge that teaches something important. Quote, the father operated in the work of creation through the son who thus became the executive through whom the will, commandment, or word of the Father was put into effect. It is with incisive appropriateness, therefore, that the Son, Jesus Christ, is designated by the Apostle John as the Word, or is declared by the Father, the Word of my power. So, we learn that from Elder Talmadge. Now, here's something for Bruce Armakonki. There are, however, two creative events that God the Father reserves for himself. So uh, the, the Savior is the word of power. Jesus Christ is the word of power. But there are still two creative events that God the Father reserves for himself. First, he is the Father of all spirits, Christ's included. Second, he is the creator of the physical body of man. So there is a distinction in that sense between the Father and the Son as creators. Now we arrive at verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. We're going to talk a lot more about angels in the next few verses, so we'll do that in a moment. But we're, we're, we're told without question that in the hierarchy of heaven, the angels worship and answer to Jesus Christ. We've talked about inheritance in this verse as it relates to being an heir, and Paul has taught us in the New Testament that we can be joint heirs with Christ. That's uh, when we approach the Father as a composite union, yoked to Christ through covenant, that we could even conceive of attaining to such a thing. And that's where grace comes in, and that's Paul's message over and over through his epistles. Then, a more excellent name. Much could be said about naming and names, but it is interesting that this phrase harkens back to the 8th Psalm in verse 1, where it says, How excellent thy name. Uh, Mendelssohn's Elijah plays upon that. All right, so for the second section, as I'm breaking them apart, of Hebrews chapter 1. We have verses 5 through 14, and we learn some very interesting things. The Son was shaped by the Word, and the author of Hebrews quotes Psalms 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 times in verses 4 through 14. And so we're going to go through that. And, and the other thing we learn about is, is angels. And something to really consider here is that these psalms would have been written about Jesus. But have you ever stopped to think about how 
they were also written to Jesus. He, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, planted those words into the minds and hearts of the author of the Psalms. And they were embedded, and they were identifiers, and a young Jesus of Nazareth would have read those Psalms and would, as a result, have been shaped by his own word. What a, what a position for the book of Psalms to be in, to play that sacred role. That might be the most important thing that the book of Psalms did, because it was there as a companion, we would imagine, for the young Jesus of Nazareth, as he gained an understanding and grew from grace to grace of who he was. Elder Callister talks about this in the Infinite Atonement, I wish I had that reference close by where he he talks about this idea that in growing from grace to grace, a young Jesus of Nazareth would have come to points of understanding of who he actually was as he as he progressed. So that's let's look at these verses and how they relate to Psalms. Verse five says, "For unto which of the angels said he at any time." Quote, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Unquote. And that's a, a perfect quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. Then says, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That appears two times in the Old Testament, once in 2 Samuel 7.14 and once in 1 Chronicles 17.13. Verse 6, And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Well, that's a strong statement, and that ties into the statement in verse 4 that says that he's so much better than the angels. The angels of God worship him. Verse 7, And the angels, and of the angels he saith, quote, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Unquote. Because that is quoting Psalm 104, verse 4. It's not a verbatim quote. It's a little bit different in Psalms. Uh, the word flaming fire is used instead of a flame of fire. And there's also a Joseph Smith translation alteration of this verse that says uh, angels are ministering spirits. That's the phrase that's used instead of who maketh his angels spirits. So we learn something about what angels are. We'll come back to that in some commentary in a few moments after we're done talking about the Psalms and how they shaped him. Now, verses 8 and 9 go together, and they correspond with Psalms, uh, or Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. Here is how verses 8 and 9 read. But unto the Son he saith, quote, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Unquote. Uh, the way the psalm says that is the scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. So it's almost a ver verbatim quote. And verse 9, quote, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, or as it says in Psalms, Psalm 45, 7, hated wickedness. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now this is an Old Testament image for sure of anointing a king. Uh, when we talk about anointing, that's, that's where that uh, image comes from. And it has 
sacred implications as well. Then we move into verses 10 through 12, and they quote uh, Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shall fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Now that last quote about making my, thine enemies thy footstool and sitting on my right hand, that comes, comes from Psalm 110. And look at the relationship between that in verse 13 and verse 3 where it says that he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's, he's linking that to Psalm 110 when he says that in verse 3. So he's coming back and quoting that in verse 13. That's really amazing that the author of Hebrews is doing that. Then in verse 14, the last verse of the chapter, we read, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? <clears throat> So, there are some things that are implied here. Uh, angels are ministering spirits, and we learn that from the Joseph Smith translation, again, of verse 7. We know that they can minister, as verse 14 says, for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, that can be us. It also suggests that angels were available to minister to Jesus the Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth, when he was on the earth. They certainly do worship him. When he played the role that he did on earth and condescended to come down and clothe himself in a mortal body, it's reasonable to assume, and we know from his time in Gethsemane, that he was ministered to by angels. I want to read some commentary about that. Um, and one of the best pieces of commentary actually is in Moroni 7, uh, verses 29 through 31, that talk about the role of angels ministering to the children of men on earth. Here's a statement by Jeffrey R. Holland that's curious as we consider the role of ministering angels. I believe we need to speak of and believe in and bear testimony to the ministering of angels more than we sometimes do. They constitute one of God's great methods of witnessing through the veil. Witnessing through the veil. Bruce C. Hafen talks about really kind of two modes or two styles of interaction between angels and us. He says... Some of these personal visits were dramatic and powerful, uh, referring to angelic ministrations through Scripture. Think of the angels who ministered to the Nephite children in the account of 3 Nephi 17, or the angel who chastised Alma and Mosiah's sons in answer to a father's prayer. Other personal manifestations have been so quiet that those who received them were unaware of the angelic presence. The ministry of these unseen angels is among the most sublime forms of interaction between heaven and earth, powerfully expressing God's concern for us and bestowing tangible assurance and spiritual sustenance upon those in great need. A beautiful quote 
and a thought-provoking concept. This, to me, suggests that a condescended Jesus Christ was able to overcome the veil through being shaped by the word and through being ministered to by angels. It suggests that we, too, can be shaped by his word and ministered to by angels. This latter idea of being ministered to by angels, as Bruce C. Hafen has told us, is something that we, we may know is happening at some point in our life, but more likely it's the second, where uh, these, to quote him again, manifestations have been so quiet that those who received them were unaware of the angelic presence. There's a precedence uh, a precedent set for that when the two disciples, one of them is named Cleopas, are walking on the road to Emmaus, and the text tells us that when a resurrected Jesus was walking with them, their eyes were holden, is the verbiage that's used there. So they didn't realize that it was him. And it does suggest to me that there are times when we could be ministered to by heavenly beings, but our eyes are holden so that we don't recognize them. Okay, that is Hebrews chapter 1.